As we begin tonight in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, we're going to conclude a important section of the book of Isaiah, and we're going to begin into another important section. You'll see how as we uh, consider the three chapters here, Isaiah chapters 48, 49, and 50. Let's begin at verse 1, Isaiah 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel. Now, if you were to stop right there, you'd say, hey, pretty good, right? Look, house of Jacob, called by the name of Israel, come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, swear by the name of the Lord. That's all pretty impressive spiritual heritage, right? I mean, that's a good spiritual image right there. Then look at how it continues on at the end of verse 1, where he says, but not in truth or in righteousness. If you notice this, the Lord is charging the people of Judah with hypocrisy. He's exposing the sin of his people. They they take his name, they identify with his holy city, they they give the appearance, if you look at verse 2, it says, for they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. They, They give the appearance of leaning upon the Lord, yet at the same time, It's only image and not reality. And God sees through the image to the reality. I'm sure this was a pointed, needed word in the days of Isaiah. I'm sure it's even more pointed and even more needed today. If there's anything that our modern media culture has encouraged and cultivated in our society today... It's the idea that a person can have an image of one thing and a reality that's something entirely different. I mean, if you think of what you watch on television, isn't that the whole distinction between image and reality? And we can be so taken in by images and so unconcerned with reality, that it's frightening. Well, God's exposing the hypocrisy of Judah right here. He says, you you say you've come forth from the wellsprings of Judah. You swear by the name of the Lord. You make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. And by the way, they have no excuse for it. Look at it here, verse 3. He says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was as an iron sinew, and your brow bronze, Even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. Well, we know here that what God is talking about is a theme that he's been touching on ever since Isaiah chapter 40. This whole section between Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah chapter 48 deals in large part with God proving himself and vindicating himself through this promise of a coming deliverer, Cyrus the Persian. And now God's saying, listen, I declared the former things from the beginning just so you would know it was me. I knew how hard your hearts were. Therefore, I'm not letting you off the hook. I did something that would give you no excuse. You would know that you knew that you knew that I'm God because I'm going to predict the, the, the deliverer of my people 200 years before he's ever born and I'm going to predict him by name. Cyrus, an amazing prophecy here that we find repeated in these chapters, Isaiah chapters 40 through 48. And all the bottom line of it is is that Judah was without excuse. They knew the greatness and power of God, yet they still lived with only a religious image without a spiritual reality 
And if you think of it tonight and you think about your own, your own spiritual experiences and what you know of the Lord and your own heritage with the Lord, on the one hand, it's very cheering to think, isn't it? How you know the greatness of God, you know the power of God, you, you know the goodness of the Lord, shown to you so many times in so many ways in your life. I mean, you've got a history with the Lord, don't you? And then you think, well, it's a comfort, but at the same time, it's a responsibility too, isn't it? We're without excuse, aren't we? What excuse do we have for backsliding? What excuse do we have for cooling in our fervor and our devotion to the Lord? We don't have any excuse. We've seen the goodness and the power of God shown to us over and over again. And so did Judah. They had no excuse, neither do we. Yet for some reason, we still find ourselves, as Judah did, sometimes straying from the Lord. Why? Why? Isn't that a troubling question? Take a look at it here, beginning at verse 6. We read, You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you've not heard them, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago, your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. See, it's as if the Lord was amazed that his people had seen all of his great power and glory, yet they still stand in obstinate rebellion against him. Why? Why? The very end of verse 8 gives us the answer, doesn't it? I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. The Lord states why his people are so deeply sinful. They are sinners from the womb. So their sinfulness is deeply entrenched. Sometimes that's a hard concept for us to latch onto. That we're born sinners. It's a difficult concept for our individualistic ears. But the Bible teaches that we are sinners from the womb. And that we inherited a sin nature because we descended from Adam and we all sinned in Adam. Let me state the biblical understanding of this very plainly. It is not our individual acts of sin that makes us sinners. No, we're born sinners. Our descent from Adam makes us sinners. Our individual acts of sin merely prove that each one of us is a transgressor from the womb. Say, no, I can't believe it. That little baby, so innocent, so sweet. And you know what? I have to agree. You know, that baby does look awfully innocent. Because that baby, you might say, is less a sinner than any of us, right? having less opportunity and less occasion to sin. Although sometimes you think that if that screaming little child had the power, they would wrap its little hands around mama's neck and say, give me that bottle right now. But it's true that we could say a little baby is less a sinner, not having the opportunity or the ability to sin as a fully grown adult. Yet you know that that child is born with a sin nature. Do we have to 
teach our children to lie? Do we have to teach our children to be disobedient? You sit down with a little book there and, and, you know, go through and show them? No. Quite the opposite. We have to teach our children good behavior. We have to teach them honesty and integrity and all the other things that, that we work hard to instill within them. We are just like Judah, verse 8, a transgressor from the womb. Now, you might be thinking tonight, that's not fair. It's not fair that I should be born a sinner. I didn't have any choice in the matter. You're saying that somebody else's actions made me a sinner, because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. What Adam did in the Garden of Eden... By the way, we should remind ourselves that the Bible always teaches us it's Adam's fault, not Eve's. What Adam did in the Garden of Eden makes you and I and everyone who's ever been a son or a daughter of Adam a sinner. Well, that's not fair. It's not fair that I should be made a sinner by the work of another person. Friends, don't you see how that same principle works for you? Did you ever consider how it could ever be fair before God that you could be made righteous by the work of another person? Now, if you are made a sinner by the work of another person, then it's completely righteous for you to be made righteous by the work of another person. And that's why God allowed us to be made sinners. You see, God knew that if he would have created you or allowed you to be born with a blank slate, right? With a clean slate. He knows you would have sinned. And you would have been a sinner because of your own actions. Then it would have been unrighteous for God to make you a righteous person by the actions of another. But because you were made a sinner by Adam, then you could be made a righteous person by Jesus Christ. It all works marvelously in God's economy. And he shows his mercy to undeserving people. Take a look here at verse 9 here. He says, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another? And interesting how God proclaims here that he says that it's for his namesake that he will defer his anger. Now, knowing how deeply sinful his people are, why would the Lord ever show them mercy? Why does he do it? He does it for his namesake. It isn't because Israel deserves mercy. Indeed, mercy can never be deserved. If it's deserved, then it's not mercy anymore. But God gives mercy to glorify himself and to further his eternal purpose. Notice what he says here in verse 10. I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. Why did a disobedient Israel feel refining fires from the Lord? Why did the heat get raised and the, they were undone and melted as wax and the dross was scraped away? You've asked the same question, right? Sure, we sing the song, you know, refiner's fire. My heart's one desire. Yeah, we like to sing that not in the time of trial, right? But put us in the midst of that refining fire and we're screaming, God, get me out of here. God, why have you allowed this? God, what are you doing? 
God says, I'm doing it for my own sake and honor and glory. I mean, look at it there in verse 10. Understand what the Lord's saying. He's saying, I put Israel in the furnace of affliction for my glory and for my sake. And you might go, well, God, that's a little bit selfish of you, don't you think? Making Israel suffer the, the furnace of affliction so that you can glorify yourself? Does it bother us to know that God allows trials and his refining fires in our lives for his own sake? Well, let's remember something right off the bat here. Let's always remember. We are not at the center of the universe. God was not created to serve your purposes. You were created to serve his purposes. We'll just get down to the most elementary lesson of theology. All right? You might want to write this in the margin of your Bible, blank page at the beginning. There is a God enthroned in the heavens, and you're not him. It's pretty simple. He's God. Everything God does, everything he allows furthers his eternal purpose. We're not at the center of it. Remember that great song that's sung in the book of Revelation? We especially like it in the King James Version where it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. God wasn't created for my pleasure. I was created for his pleasure. And instead of resenting it, I should thank him that even my furnace of affliction can give glory to him. Isn't that marvelous? It's not wasted. It's not just senseless, meaningless pain and suffering. It's something that gives glory and honor to him. That's a redeeming thought in the midst of it. And God will remind us why, why he allows these things. Look at verses 12 and 13, where he says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Huh. Well, God is the only true God, the God of all glory, the God of all eternity, the God of all creation. Don't you think it's fitting for us to serve his glory instead of us to serve our glory? Now, you know what's marvelous about this, and we'll touch on this point a little bit later on as well. But that when we are glorifying God, when we are concerned with fulfilling his purpose, that's when we fulfill our purpose. And we're the happiest. Because we're living for what we were created for. And God looks at his disobedient people. Look here, verse 14. All of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him and brought him, and his ways will prosper. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. 
Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Notice this in verse 14. Consider what God has just spoken to his people. He says, I put you in the furnace of affliction for my glory. I'm the God of all creation, all power, all honor and glory. Now, it might lead some people to think that God is some kind of power-hungry egomaniac. That his motivation is just to glorify himself at the expense of his people. No, look at what his motive is. Verse 14. The Lord loves him. That's why. God is motivated by love for his people. It's the Lord's love that makes him want us to obey and praise him. Love desires quite properly that things work according to their design and purpose. Let me use a very crude way to illustrate this. Let's say I get a new surfboard that I just love. Oh, I love it. Man, is it great. Beautiful, beautiful board. And I love it a lot. So when I'm working on my car, and I have it jacked up to to do the brakes, and I need to put something underneath the car, you know, because I lost my jack stands, I just kind of ram the surfboard under there on the rail so that if the jack goes out, it'll rest on the surfboard and it won't crush me. Now, that's not loving that surfboard very much, is it? I mean, even though you could conceivably use a surfboard for that, it's not using it according to its design and purpose. If you really love someone or something, you'll use them according to their created and designed purpose. And God knows that we were designed and purposed to obey and praise our Creator. And so when God says, obey me, it's not because God is insecure in heaven and he needs people following him around and supporting him or he doesn't think he's doing a good job. God says, obey me because he knows it's best for you. God says, praise me. Not because God is insecure and he needs people giving him strokes in heaven, giving him the attaboys. No, not at all. God says, praise me, because he knows that's why you were created, and you're fulfilling your purpose, and he loves you. He calls us to submit to him and honor him for our good, not to satisfy some need in himself. So just as much as it is the love of the Lord for his people, that shall, look here in verse 14, that he'll do his pleasure on Babylon. He's going to punish that nation that set itself against his people. So it's the love of the Lord that allows the refining fires to touch his people. And so God proclaims, did you notice the striking words here in verse 16? Come near to me, hear this. Now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Who do you think is starting to speak here in verse 16? It's the Messiah. It's the servant of the Lord, the Messiah himself. Only he fulfills what says there in verse 16. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From that time that it was, I was there. Yes, from the beginning he spoke. And what does he say? Look at it there in verse 18. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. 
in light of his power and love for Israel, God laments their unfulfilled potential, unfulfilled because of their disobedience. Look at what would have been among Israel if they would have obeyed. Verse 18, then your peace would have been like a river. That song, I've got peace like a river, right? Well, that's where they get it from. Isn't it funny? You never notice the context in which it's put there. Israel could have had peace like a river, but they wouldn't because they didn't obey the Lord. If they would have obeyed, then they would have had peace like a river. Peace is flowing, bountiful, and life-giving as a river. If they only would have obeyed, look at it there at verse 18, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea, the waves unceasing, as unending, as certain, as reliable, as, as filled with multitude as the waves of the sea. And then he said, if they only would have obeyed, verse 19, then your descendants also would have been like the sand, as numerous and as dense in population as the sand. Friends, it's sobering to think what unfulfilled potential we have and what our disobedience or unbelief keeps us from in the Lord. Think about, think of the unfulfilled potential, the honor and glory of Jesus Christ that there is just in this room here this evening. I mean, think of of how the Lord has taught us and used us and trained us. And if we could just simply get the things out of the way that hinder us from being used of the Lord. Oh, oh, how the Lord could use us in a great way. So here he speaks praise for the Lord's redemption. Look at verse 20. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldees with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this. Utter it even to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. You see, despite Israel's disobedience and unfulfilled potential, the Lord still loves them. And he still is going to free them from their captivity in Babylon. When they leave Babylon, he'll, they'll go forth with a voice of singing. I mean, isn't this beautiful? We almost think that the Lord would look at Israel and say, all that unfulfilled potential, let them free themselves from Babylon. You know, God thinking, I need this like I need a hole in it. Get your act all together before me, and then you'll start seeing me do something for it. No! If you feel like you're a, a weak believer tonight, unfulfilled potential before the Lord, lacking in areas where you could be strong, I've got a message for you tonight. The Lord loves you. He cares about you. He cherishes you. And yes, he wants you to go deeper. And yes, he's calling you deeper. Yes, you know that and you sense that. But he loves you. And he's still going to deliver you, as he says in verses 20 and 21. And they say, declare, proclaim this even to the end of the earth. All over the place, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. The whole world should know how great and merciful God is. But look at the flip side, verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Hand in hand with praise for the greatness of the Lord is a contrast. The destined misery for the wicked. You know, it's amazing here, this broad section of Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. It focused on God's promise of deliverance of his people from their captivity from Babylon and the very specific prediction of the Gentile king who would deliver them. And remember his name, Cyrus. 
And throughout all this section, God shows His desire to to deliver His people, proves His love, and His ability to deliver His people, proves His power, and His prophetic knowledge of the Deliverer proves His uniqueness among all the gods. Remember all the the times in the last several chapters we've seen God putting down the gods of the nation. Well, you don't know anything, but I I know the Deliverer is going to come 200 years before He comes. Now, starting with Isaiah chapter 49, which we move into now, We're done talking about Cyrus. This Persian king that God describes by name 200 years before he was born. He was a very prominent person in Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. But we're done with Cyrus. Now you know who the next person is that's prominent in the coming chapters. The Messiah. The servant of the Lord. Jesus Christ. And though there's still reference to the deliverance from Babylon's captivity, the real focus in the coming chapters is on the ultimate deliverance that the Messiah will bring. So let's jump into it. Isaiah chapter 49. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. Now, who do you think is speaking there in verse 1? Well, take a look here. Let's continue on. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me, and he has made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. Again, as the context will show, these words come prophetically from the Messiah, the servant of the Lord revealed in previous chapters. And here he commands the coastlands, the distant lands of the Gentiles, to listen to him. He says, The Lord has called me from the womb, the Messiah. Later revealed as Jesus Christ was called from the womb. Actually, as shown in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says his going forth were from everlasting, Jesus was called even before he was in Mary's womb. Yet here he starts at the point at which any man could most readily relate to. And he says that from the matrix of my mother, he's made mention of my name. Do you understand that? That even before Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, God knew his name. He Told by the angel Gabriel, Mary, you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And then he says here in verse 2, that he's made my mouth like a sharp sword. This means that the very words of the Messiah have power and authority. I mean, you can imagine some people need uh, to, to brandish a weapon to show their authority. You know, here's a sword, here's a gun, do this, or here's the weapon. The Messiah only needs to speak, right? His words are like a sword. He speaks and you do it. His words have that kind of authority. And in a beautiful picture here in verse 2, he says, In the shadow of his hand he's hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he's hidden me. The Messiah prophetically proclaims that he's like a carefully made and polished arrow in the service of the Lord, ready to be used at the right time. And then he's hidden in the quiver. I wonder if that doesn't have reference to the, to the so to speak, hidden years of Jesus when he lived in obscurity as a polished shaft waiting in the quiver of the Lord. And look at the confidence of the Messiah, verse 3. And he said to me, again, this is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, speaking of God as Father. He said, and, you, and he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I've labored in vain, and I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Verse 3 has been a point of confusion for some people because the rest of the context of this chapter indicates that this passage speaks of the Messiah. Some people think that, that 
the servant spoken of here in this chapter isn't the Messiah at all, but that it's Israel, because it says in verse 3, You are my servant, O Israel. No, it's a reference to Jesus. Then why would the Lord call the Messiah Israel? Well, first, because the Messiah comes from Israel and is a representative of the nation. Second, because the Messiah fulfills the name of Israel. And you know what the name Israel means? It means governed by God. Well, that's Jesus, isn't it? And so here, in a unique usage, we we know from the entire context that he's speaking to the Messiah, and in this unique usage, he, he calls Jesus by the name Israel. Notice what he says here, verse 4. Then I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Now, what I think is fascinating about this is that the translators of the New King James Version do not believe that these words belong in the mouth of the Messiah. And how can I say that? Look at verse 4 carefully. It says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength. Now, is my with a capital M or a lowercase m? It's with a lowercase m in the New King James Version. That means that the translators of the New King James do not want to attribute these words to the Messiah because elsewhere where the Messiah speaks, they capitalize the pronouns. Yet, these words certainly can be prophetically set in the mouth of the Messiah because surely Jesus was tempted by the discouraging thought that all his work was in vain and for nothing. Yet, he triumphed over such temptation because look at the end of the verse. Then I said, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Do you see that? Do you see how Jesus was tempted to see his work as being vanity and futility? Yet he never gave in to that temptation. And when we consider what and who the Lord Jesus had to work with on this earth, We certainly must believe that one of the greatest temptations he ever faced was the temptation to discouragement. Could you imagine him working with the the disciples and not being tempted into discouragement? And not thinking, oh, this is never going to work. God, what are you doing? All that I poured into these men, it's in vain. Surely he was tempted. But this passage shows that even though he ministered in difficult and discouraging circumstances, he never gave in to discouragement, but always put his trust in the Lord. Look at it here in verse 5. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, to the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Isn't that beautiful? It's as if the Lord's detailing the job description of the Messiah. And he says, well, sure, you're going to go to Jacob. And sure, you're going to minister to him. You're going to do that to the tribes. That's wonderful. But that's too small. That's not enough. 
You're also going to call the Gentiles and you're going to be a light to the nations and you're going to go to the ends of the earth with your salvation. Yes, yes, it's an important, important prophecy of the Messiah. Saying how his word goes out to the nations and kings shall see and arise and princes also shall worship. In the end, the Messiah will not be despised or abhorred. He'll receive the worship and the honor he deserves because he's the chosen of the Lord. And look at the glory of the Messiah's ministry here, beginning at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, Go forth to those who are in darkness, Show yourselves. You shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be all on desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west and those from the land of Sinem. Yes. It begins in verse 8, speaking of the acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you, that the Lord God extended His help and His preservation to the Messiah all through His earthly ministry. It's beautiful to imagine Jesus comforting and strengthening His soul with these promises as He anticipated and endured the ordeal of the cross. He could know, based on these promises, that the Lord would hear, help, and preserve him. And look at it here. It's a promise from the Lord to the Messiah in verse 8. I've heard you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. And you picture Jesus hanging on the cross, comforting himself with the, with the reminder, with that memorized verse. Yes, Lord, you will help me. You will show yourself strong in this day of salvation. You'll, you'll be giving me as a covenant to the people, as he says. And look at it there beautifully. It says, verse 9, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. Jesus' ministry set people free from bondage and imprisonment. He, he set the demon-possessed free from the bondage of chains and demonic torture. He set the sick and the diseased free from the bondage of their infirmities. He set the righteous dead in Hades free from their place. And he set those who were in bondage to sin and the law free. It says there in verse 9, you may say to the prisoners, go forth. And so he'll lead them, he'll guide them with the springs of water, both in the immediate sense of the return from the captivity of Babylon, but the ultimate sense of leading his people to glory. Look at it there, it's fascinating, verse 11. He says, I will make each of my mountains a road. Isn't that fascinating? The mountains in the way of the returning exiles, both in the near and far from mountains, they would seem to defeat the purpose of the Lord. Here you are, you're on a path that the Lord sets you on, right? Here, come to me, God says, and there's a mountain in the way. Well, Lord, what do I do? You want me to come, you're guiding me, you're leading me, and look, now there's a great big mountain in the way. Thanks, Lord. What are you doing, God? No, if you notice it here, it says in verse 11, I will make each of my mountains a road. Every one of them. There's no exception. There's nothing in life, no obstacle, no loneliness, no trial, no sorrow. There's nothing of this that cannot be a way into God's richest blessing. God says, I'm going to make that mountain a way of deliverance. Now, if you notice here in verse 11, each one, it says, I will make each of my mountains. 
The mountain that's in your way, it's still the Lord's mountain. It's his mountain. He put it there for a purpose. He allowed it to be there for a purpose. And the purpose was not to torment you because he hates you. No, there's a loving, wise purpose for every mountain. And God wants to make each of my mountains a road, he says. No, God has that path of blessing for you, and it's right there through the mountains. And calling even to the ends of the earth. Look at to the song of praise here, verse 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Isn't it great? God bringing forth his mercy and comfort and his goodness. Oh, and everybody says, yes, God, yes, yes. And then there's a voice from the back of the room where God's speaking. Verse 14. But Zion said, here's the voice from the back of the room, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has, excuse me, and my Lord has forgotten me. You know, in the midst of this great praise for the Messiah and his saving work, Zion, which speaks of the highest hill in Jerusalem and the, metaphorically a place for God's people, Zion objects. Zion says, No, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Now, the rest of chapter 49 and on into chapter 50 is going to answer this question. You know, it's a very simple question. Does God really care about us? That's the question here that they're asking. The Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. Yeah, Lord, promises, promises. Take those mountains out of the way, springs in the desert, bring us back, praise and glory. Yeah, well, right now I'm in a pit. Do you even care about us, God? Does God really care about me? God says, well, let me answer that question. Beginning here at verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Though bizarre accounts of unspeakable cruelty surface from time to time, everyone knows that a woman will never forget her nursing child. Yet the Lord says, surely they will forget, yet I will not forget you. The Lord's affection for his people is greater than the devotion that a woman has for her nursing child. I care, God says. Is that not enough? Look at verse 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Oh, isn't that striking? Now you can open up commentaries and they'll explain to you about tattooing rituals in the ancient world where identifying marks might be put on the palm of somebody's hands. But you know what this is all about. It has an obvious and a beautiful fulfillment in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. As Jesus told John, uh, Thomas in a post-resurrection appearance, he said, look at my hands. That's John chapter 20, verse 27. When we see the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, we see how he has inscribed us on the palms of his hands. With such love, how could God ever forget his people? Then he goes on, verse 16. 
Your walls are continually before me. The, the walls refers to the city of Jerusalem, which figuratively speak of the health, the strength, the prosperity, the security of God's people. God's always mindful of the condition of his people, despite the objections of a doubting Zion. And then he says, verse 17, Your sons shall make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Lift up your eyes, look around and see all these gather together and come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. Oh, the Lord will return the captives. He'll return the exiles, both in a near fulfillment from Babylon and ultimate fulfillment when he gathers together uh, the people of Israel in the last days. Yes, all of them gathered together. And this is another demonstration of the Lord's care for Israel. And God, God does care and he promises and affirms blessing for Zion. Look at it there in verse 19. For your waste and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children you will have after you will have lost the others. You, you will say again in your ears, this place is too small for me. Give me a place where I may dwell. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I've lost my children and I'm desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who's brought these up? There I was, left alone. But these, where were they? In other words, God's saying, I'm going to bless Israel so much that there's going to be so many people in Israel. You can look around and say, wow, where'd they come from? These are children. These are children of Israel, descendants of Jacob. Where did they come from? Well, I never knew there were so many. And he goes on, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they will not be ashamed who wait for me. God says, do I care about you? I'm going to make the nations your servants. I'm going to make kings your helpers, your servants. Yes, yes, I care about you. And then the conclusion of the chapter, verse 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty? or the captives of the righteous be delivered? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. God says, listen, you, you mess with my children. I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to trouble them who have troubled you. Do I care about you? Yes, I care. And my promise and its fulfillment will demonstrate it. God isn't done showing his care. Because in verse 50, now he shows his care in perhaps the most powerful and personal way by the ministry of the Messiah himself. Look at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. For your transgressions your mother has been put away. Essentially, God speaks to a doubting Zion. And he says, you say I don't care about you anymore. You say that I've divorced you. Well, very well, produce the document. Where's the bill of divorcement? God says there is none. Because I've never divorced you. 
You say I've forsaken you like I've sold you into slavery. Well, then where is it, God says? Where's the evidence? God says, no. Why are you in trouble? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. It's your fault and no one else's. And God says in verse 2, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. God says, listen, there's no problem with me on this. I'm not short in my might. I'm not short in my power. No, I have it all. No, the, the, the question here continues on in verse 3. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. I do it all, God says. No shortage of power with me. No. You accuse me of not caring, God says. No, but I care. It's your own sin, your own iniquity that's put you in this place. Now the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, speaks again, beginning at verse 4. This is another way God shows his care for Israel. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Messiah now prophetically speaks again, explaining, first of all, that the Lord has given him the ability to speak wisely. Did you notice that in verse 4? The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned. The tongue of the learned. Isn't that something we'd all like to have? To be able to speak wisely with knowledge. But notice what he uses it for. Verse 4, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. What a glorious use of the tongue of the learned. You know, some people have the tongue of the learned, but they use it to put down other people or to cut up other people or just to justify themselves. God says, no, I've got the tongue of the learned, the Messiah says, and I use it to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He goes on here, verse 4 in the middle of it. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Messiah here prophetically speaks of his daily, wonderful, deep fellowship with God the Father. It's in these times that Jesus heard from his Father that he could say, he awakens my ear to hear as the learned. And isn't that beautiful? Jesus could speak with the tongue of the learned because in his daily time with God, he learned how to hear with the ear of the learned. You want to have the tongue of the learned? Then seek God every day for the ear of the learned. Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Now, how submitted was Jesus unto the Father? Look at it here, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. 
Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This prophecy speaks in chilling detail of the sufferings of the Messiah. We know, of course, from the scriptures that Jesus was beaten on the back before his crucifixion. We know that Jesus was beaten on the face. We know that he was mocked and spat upon. The scriptures tell us this very specifically. I think it's incredible here in verse 6 where we're told that Jesus had his beard plucked out. Now, that's something we're not specifically told of in the Gospels. And it doesn't mean that every last hair on Jesus' beard, but obviously as part of his torture and disgrace, they plucked out some of the hairs of his beard. Now, what's amazing of this is, first of all, just to think again of the amazing agony that Jesus endured, but to understand that this is even more than the Gospel writers explain to us. I mean, as bad as the gospel writers tell us Jesus' sufferings, they weren't even telling us the whole story. You've got to come to the book of Isaiah to get more of the picture. He suffered the deepest humiliation. Look at it here in verse 6. My cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, which would be painful, but in that culture was a severe insult. And then they, they did not hide his face from the shame and the spitting. This isn't just suffering, it's abject humiliation. Can I bring out a a verse here that we shy away at at a time like this? The verse where Jesus says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And Jesus endured this kind of humiliation. And if we will be followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes we will too. Charles Spurgeon said in preaching on this passage, he said, many of us could give to Christ all our health and strength and all the money we have, very heartily and cheerfully. But when it comes to the point of reputation, we feel the pinch. To be slandered, to have some filthy things said of you, This is too much for flesh and blood. You seem to say, I cannot be made a fool of. I cannot bear to be regarded as a mere imposter. But a true servant of Christ must take himself of no reputation when he takes upon himself the work of the Lord. Our blessed master was willing to be scoffed at by the lewdest and lowest of men. If you notice it here in verse 6, he says, I gave my back. That means that Jesus did it voluntarily. Remember the question, does God care about me? Who could say that he doesn't care about us when he did this for us? But look at the confidence of the Messiah, verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. In the midst of all this suffering, humiliation, and pain, the Messiah has an unshakable confidence in the help of the Lord God. Can we have the same confidence in God? It's pitiful for us to to lose this confidence, to refuse to suffer, to, to stop the fight. No, no, Jesus was never in that posture. We must trust the Lord and proclaim, for the Lord God will help me. And look at the determination here, verse 7. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. 
Despite knowing the agony awaiting him, the Messiah will have a steadfast determination to obey the Lord God and follow his way. His face was set as hard as flint, and nothing would turn him aside. By the way, this was fulfilled specifically in the life of Jesus. Luke even had this verse in mind when he writes in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus, knowing what was ahead of him in Jerusalem, set his face like flint towards the city and would not be deterred. You know, there's two kinds of courage. There's the courage of the moment. That doesn't require previous thought, does it? You know, you, you dive in front of the bus to push the baby carriage away. You didn't think about that for an hour ahead of time. You just reacted. You just did it. And it's a marvelous form of courage, isn't it? The courage of the moment. But then there's planned courage, isn't there? You see the difficulty ahead. It's off on the horizon. And you steadfastly march towards it. Jesus had that kind of courage. He saw the cross on the horizon, but he still set his face like a flint. And he did it in confidence. Look at it there. He says, verse 7, And I know that I will not be ashamed. You see, the courage of the Messiah wasn't a bland resignation to fate. God doesn't fetch you come up. Well, you know, I'll do it. And whatever happens, happens. No. No. Verse 7, And I know that I will not be ashamed. He can set his face like a flint because he can say, I know that I will not be ashamed. And notice, he says here in verse 8, He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? This is the Messiah's way of quoting Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if it isn't clear enough, he says it again. Look at verse 9. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Come on now, who's going to do it? Now, you can see how the Messiah could say that, right? You could see how Jesus could say, Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Right? Those those words feel very comfortable in the mouth of Jesus, don't they? You see, the same principle applies to us because we are in Christ. If Jesus stands in this place of victory, then all those who are in Christ stand there also. Let's finish the chapter, verse 10. This is Jesus now speaking to you and to me, challenging us to submit to the Lord as he does. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. See how the verse begins in verse 10? Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Now the Messiah speaks to his people and challenges them to fear the Lord and obey his servant, the Messiah himself. Jesus says, listen, I've obeyed. I've shown this love. I've shown this submission to the Father. Now you do it too. But the Lord says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. The Messiah guides his people into the path of light Simply put, you trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon your God. 
It isn't necessarily easy, but it's not complicated, is it? You trust the Lord. Now look at the alternative here in verse 11. Did you find that a little hard to understand? Take another look, and I think it'll be clear. He says, Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and the sparks you've kindled. Now, right there, you almost say, oh, that sounds nice, right? All right we want to have that fire and a nice little fire going? No. We might think that this fire is a positive ver- uh, thing, but in the light of the entire verse, it isn't positive. It's like the profane fire of Nadab and Abihu described in Numbers chapter 10. A fire that, that's meant to sort of, of be in the place of what the Lord does. Lord, we don't need your holy fire. We'll make our own, God. We'll make our own thing. We'll do our own thing. And if we walk in the light of that fire and in the sparks that we have kindled, then what will we have? Look at verse 11. We'll have torment from the hand of the Lord. This follows along the line of the Messiah's exhortation to trust the name of the Lord and not in our own efforts before God. Those are like a profane fire before him. You see the solution? Either we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and follow after him and submit to the Lord, or you're going to try to light your own fire before God. Now you try to do that, you try to do it your way, and you're just going to end up burned. No, you follow after the Messiah's way. You follow in submission to the Lord and following after Christ, even in humiliation, where it leads into humiliation. And you find blessing untold. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. And it just gets better in the future chapters as Jesus is more and more glorified. No wonder Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth evangelist, the fifth gospel. And you'll see why both tonight and as we head on. Let's thank the Lord for our time together.